Hello, and welcome to the Trauma and Mental Health Report podcast series. We aim to share stories and knowledge on topics related to trauma and mental health within the community. My name is Lotus Vu, and I'd like to welcome our guest today for today's episode, Dr. Skip Ritzel, Director for Medical Virtual Reality at the Institute of Creative Technology. He is also a research professor at the USC Davis School of Gerontology and USC Keck School of Medicine, Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences. Dr. Ritzel received an American Psychological Association 2010 Award for Outstanding Contribution to the Treatment of Trauma for his groundbreaking research into VR technology in the treatment of PTSD. He's also the developer behind Ask Ari, the artificial intelligence chatbot at the University of Southern California to offer mental health support to students. Today, we will be discussing the application of this technology to the treatment of trauma and <coughs> mental health support. Let's get into today's conversation. Good afternoon, Dr. Ritzel. How are you? May I call I'm you I'm doing Skip? fine. Yes, call me Skip, please, <laughs> Lotus. <laughs> uh, could you tell us a little bit about how you got into your specialty and what motivated you to do the work with uh, VR and AI technology? Yeah, well, uh, you know, I was trained as a clinical psychologist and I worked clinically in the area of brain injury rehab in the late 80s and early 90s. And um, at that time, I was pretty frustrated with the tools we had available for doing uh, rehabilitation of brain function with people after, you know, an injury or a stroke and so forth. And I started to learn about uh, new computer technology at the time and also about virtual reality. And it just seemed to be uh, a match between what we needed to do clinically and the power of this technology or the potential power. I got to remind you that back in the early to mid 90s, there was a similar level of excitement about virtual reality as there is today. But the difference was we, the technology for delivering on that vision was really immature. And so we went through a long nuclear winter uh, after about 95, 96, where people recognized the vision for VR, but it certainly wasn't something that was going to be ready for prime time. But I hung in there, and our lab began in 1995. And over the years, uh, as you said in your intro, we've worked on a wide variety of clinical applications, trying out um, everything from immersive virtual reality with headsets and so forth, or projection-based or web-based applications, uh, moving into mobile applications, augmented reality, all these technologies that we can bring to bear that make a lot of sense for either developing new treatments or amplifying existing treatments that we know are theoretically informed and scientifically based. So um, that's really where we are today. Fortunately, uh, at the current time, the technology has, in fact, caught up with the vision. Uh, we still have a ways to go, but certainly we can do great things now. And we're also armed with about 25 years' worth of scientific research that gives us a roadmap for where we might be able to successfully apply these new technologies for the, the common good for healthcare and education and, and so forth. So, um, you know, between those two points about the probably the largest and uh, most expansive scientific literature of any VR or AR use case, um, coupled with the dramatic improvements in the technology. I think we're at the tipping point now for leveraging all of these technologies, AI included, uh, to really make a positive difference in the world. Plus, people are also more accustomed 
to uh, talking to a machine per se <laughs> and more accustomed <laughs> to these kind of technologies in their every, everyday life. Oh, I, th I think certainly, uh, especially, you know, the current uh, generation of folks who've grown up digital. I mean, I, I didn't send my first email till I think I was uh, 39 or 40. <laughs> uh, and now, you know, you have children with uh, iPads at four years old playing games. Uh, so the, this is not science fiction for them by any means. This is part of the digital landscape that they grew up with. And I think they're, they're gonna, there's going to be a heck of a lot more uptake uh, in the use of these technologies, and particularly with AI, um, as that uh, area evolves a bit more, um, I think there's going to be less pushback. There's going to be a little bit less of the feeling of creepiness, like what I grew up with, uh, you know, with Hal from the, you know, uh, 2001. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> you know, those, that, that's a useful cautionary tale. Trust me. I mean, we need to pay attention to those. Uh, those lessons, if you will, or those, uh, you know, potential uh, ways that things could go, uh, unanticipated consequences. But we can't, we, we also can't cast a blind eye to the tremendous power that this technology may provide if thoughtfully and ethically applied for human good. Now, uh, you have applied VR technology to the treatment of PTSD. Uh, could you That's tell us a little bit about that? Sure. Uh, we got involved in this work uh, around 2003 uh, with the, uh, the start of the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, and we saw that there might be uh, a real need to address the invisible wounds of war, particularly with PTSD and also with traumatic brain injury. Um, so we looked at what, is, what does the science tell us about uh, some of the best evidence-based treatments for PTSD, and up to that point, it was really trauma-focused treatments, not just helping a person to forget about uh, their trauma or to mollify the symptoms with medication, but rather to go ahead on and help them in a safe place to confront and reprocess those difficult emotional memories. So the current practice at that time was exclusively in the realm of imagination for this area. Some people did in vivo exposure, you know, going in the real world, having people to go back to the scene of the crime in the real world, but that was very difficult and rare. So our vision was, you know, let's do this in VR where we can put people back in simulations that are reminiscent or mimic the nature of the traumatic experience at a pace they can handle and help them to gradually confront and reprocess those emotional memories in a safe place so that uh, we hopefully extinguish the anxiety response, but also empower them to learn how to cope with some of these things as they move forward in their life. And this is always driven by the view that uh, PTSD should not be conceptualized as a life sentence. We're, we're certainly not in the business of erasing memories. Those sad and difficult memories will always be with that person. But those memories should not be a harness that pulls somebody back from engaging in life in a, in a positive emotional uh, way moving forward. So we're very committed to this idea that, yes, this is hard medicine for a hard problem. When people first hear about this exposure therapy approach. Uh, they often say, why the heck would you do that? And then I have to point to, well, the science says for a lot of people, this is the best uh, evidence-based uh, approach to therapy. So that's what we do. We're trying to amplify uh, what we already know has some scientific basis, and to study that process in, a, in actually 
a more refined way. I mean, you can look at virtual reality as the ultimate Skinner box. Yeah. Uh, you know, so that's the direction we've gone in that work. So with this tech, VR technology, you've been applying it to uh, veterans, isn't it? Yes, and now um, we've expanded the work to military sexual trauma with mm. good results that now will be uh, translated to civilian populations. We're also doing, uh, uh, I'd say, primordial work with um, police, firefighters, first responders, you know, that, that population. I mean, there's certainly plenty of trauma in the world, and there are plenty of occupations where um, people are regularly confronted with high stress or traumatic uh, circumstances that would would run a chill up the backbone of people that, that don't have any connection with that. And certainly what we're going through with the COVID uh, situation now, I'm expecting there's going to be uh, a lot of mental health uh, repair that will be needed, whether it's for uh, first responders or healthcare providers, or for the general population, we're going to have to pay close attention to the psychological and emotional impact of uh, the experience we're going through now. So how how would, for example, uh, someone who experienced trauma through all this uh, COVID pandemic, how would they be treated in a VR environment? Well, this may be a tall order at this point, and we are conceptualizing how we might do it. It's, it's a little bit different than a combat-related experience where we can recreate the scene in which the person experiences a desert roadway or Afghan mountaintop or a marketplace in Iraq. Um, we can recreate those specific trauma experiences and, and gradually ramp up the provocative nature of it to more closely match what the patient went through. With this, there is going to be so much diversity uh, that you know, is VR going to be the most effective way or is straight up talk therapy uh, going to be helpful in helping a person to reprocess the difficult emotional memories that they went through? I mean, PTSD is not just having a bad memory or uh, bad recollection of sad things that happened. This is where people really get stuck and yeah. they start to avoid going to places that reminded them of the trauma or thinking about things that remind them of the trauma it comes back as nightmares or flashbacks or they're hyper vigilant or their um, cognitive or emotional uh, interpretations of the world are altered so i think there's a lot of ways that we can address these residual effects with ptsd um, either using simulation technology where we where we help people to not avoid talking about what they went through, uh, we encourage it in a safe, supportive environment and under the aegis of a good clinician. Uh, so it might be hospital settings, it may be home environments, it may be grocery stores, what, whatever the context of relevance that we need to understand by looking at the patient population, we can construct those. And even if it's very minimalistic, like for example, with the sexual trauma work, Unlike the combat-related stuff, we don't get to the point where we're actually having someone re-experience a sexual assault. We're just recreating the context in which these things happen. And that seems to open up the floodgates of a person's recollection and emotional experience uh, yeah. that is very tender, but can be addressed with a well-trained clinician effectively. So we would do a similar process in that simulation mode. Uh, but it would, it's going to take a lot of listening to um, 
people that have this condition and understanding what their experience is before we can begin to design, you know, to, to optimally design the best scenarios for them. Now, alternatively, there are other things that we can do that specifically leverage AI. Uh, and that involves using artificially intelligent virtual human agents that can be support agents for healthcare, can be virtual buddies. I've, I've had, uh, went through a little bit of your work on Sim Sensei. Yes. Um, and the interviewing process. It's an, and it's amazing that uh, people would respond to Sim Sensei as almost as if they're responding to a real person and they found it easier to talk to them. Yes. I mean, this is something that um, kind of took us a little bit by surprise uh, because, you know, up to that point, everybody was thinking, oh, you try to build a virtual human. People know it's not real. They're never going to relate to it like it's a real thing. It's going to be creepy. It's going to fall into the uncanny valley and so forth. But our research has shown quite the opposite, that um, when people interact with fairly credibly done virtual humans that have good natural language processing and can provide credible interaction and, and verbal interaction and facial and gestural interaction with the user that, you know, even though the frontal lobes of the user knows that this is just a simulation, the other parts of the brain that react to the perceptual stimuli, like in the limbic system and the emotional components start to react as if it's the real thing. And what we find is that people once they start getting credible interaction with a virtual human, they start to talk to it as if it's the real thing and uh, can get uh, some benefit and they feel safer. That's the, the big thing here is that uh, in studies that we've run where we've compared talking to an avatar, which is being run by a real person in the loop that the user knows is operating that avatar, as opposed to uh, you know, an autonomous agent, you know, all software, that people reveal more, they self-disclose more personal information to the software agent. They, you know, they reveal more incidents of sadness from the past. They also report that they have less worry about impression management or risk or shame. Yeah. So there may be a place for this where people open up more and more honestly and self-reflect in a more honest way because they know they're not being judged. Do you see... Uh that in the future of AI research related to this, you see it uh, can be applied as a replacement for a therapist or um, you know, for treatment of PTSD and trauma? No. Uh, <laughs> uh, perhaps past my lifetime, that may become more feasible, um, but I have a strong uh, uh, attachment and ethical motivation that uh, we need to keep clinicians in the mix to inform proper decision-making, diagnostic decision-making, and to make decisions perhaps aided by an AI logic model, but the, the human has to, has to be in charge here. Uh, we're not talking about replacing live clinicians. We're talking about filling gaps where there might not be a clinician um, available and where we can do some level of support, but I wouldn't call it therapy at this point. Like the Ascari program, that's certainly not therapy. That's like a, an agent that is like a concierge of a massive amount of healthcare information 
that students can interact with and, and talk to and get that information in a more naturalistic way rather than doing 100 Google searches on different search terms and getting <laughs> less vetted, well-vetted uh, healthcare information. That's, that's the thing here. So I think that we are nibbling around the edges here where we're trying to fill in a gap and Ascari is a really good example of that, which I can talk about if you want. Um, or for people who are hesitant or don't have the resources to go to a clinician and engage in regular therapy. Uh, this may be a toe in the water. Uh, it may be sufficient in some cases, or maybe a toe in the water that encourages them to actually seek out treatment. And the, the AI software can also recommend people to find resources or recommend resources that they didn't know were available that are in fact free if the economics are the, the, the bottleneck for them getting good care. So I, I think so we're, we have, we're, we're not yeah. going to, to get to the point where I can just lay down on my couch and say, you know, psychoanalyze me Freud with an AI, is it? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, let me say this. Um, there are a lot of cases to be made for that. Um, I'm not endorsing it, but I'll, I'll, light, I'll list off a couple of the cases here uh, or some of the, the rationales for it. And that is that a virtual clinician would have an encyclopedic knowledge of all uh, approaches to therapy and the relative benefits. Mm -hmm. It's available 24 yeah. seven. It never tires. It's not biased in the sense of uh, a live clinician maybe being biased by the physical or psychological or, or emotional appearance of a patient. That certainly there is unconscious bias that goes on in a therapy session. Your, your humans do have yeah. that, regardless of how well trained. Um, so you can start to see that that would be a compelling case for moving in that direction. And as well, you could begin capturing data, all privacy issues aside, you could be capturing data that go well beyond the capacity of a human to capture. So vocal parameters and prosody in comparison between sessions in terms of the vocalizations, not just what they say, but how they say it. Perhaps you tap into their mobile phone so you get some measure of their you know, interaction in the real world. How much do they go around and interact in the world? Are they in a bar every night till two in the morning? Um, or are they engaging in exercise? You know, do we tie this into sensors that people wear, like Fitbits or Apple Watches or other types of wearable sensors, Empatica-type uh, devices? Um, and so all that data can be captured and can be aggregated in a way where the software may come to know the person in ways that a clinician never could. Now, mm -hmm. with that said, I, I do want to say that um, we're many years away from it, and many research studies away from ever being able to do that in a safe way, short of taking these small steps towards helping people access information, engage them in some dialogue that uh, helps them to self-reflect and so forth. But certainly this will be the most contentious issue in clinical psychology and social work in any area of clinical care uh, over the next five to 10 years as the technology gets better, faster, cheaper, and more available. Uh, this will be extremely contentious, and we have to, I think we have to err on the side of caution with all of this. Uh, you know, there's tremendous power here, but we have to know where that power can be usefully applied rather than just 
you know, saying, okay, now we're going to replace all clinicians and uh, go with this before we fully understand the space. Mm. So what have your been, uh, experience been with ASARI and how did that work out? Well, Ask Ari was very interesting because the original project was designed to be exactly a fill-in-the-gap application. Uh, it came about with the uh, counseling center at USC having not enough um, uh, care providers for the, the total amount of the students. So students would come in and they'd get interviewed and then they'd get put on a waiting list for three to five weeks before a live provider would be available. Mm. Um, now what do you do during that three to five weeks and especially during a school semester? So our vision was to create a fill in the gap type character that, you know, could do some psychoeducation, could help the person understand how they think about the world and provide healthcare or mental health uh, tips and tactics in that way. Maybe some very light cognitive behavioral exercises that uh, are highly manualized, things that you would get out of a self-help book anyway, but to make it more engaging by way of a virtual agent. That way, when that live provider became available, the person's already been inured to the, uh, the process of perhaps therapy or counseling, um, would have already maybe come to a deeper level of self-understanding by their interaction during that three to five week period, and maybe get better clinical outcomes. Well, as it turned out, um, USC wanted us to use a lot of the resources, well-vetted healthcare content that they already had all spread out all across various websites and different departments and, and healthcare-focused uh, uh, agencies within a university. So we, we tapped into all that really well-vetted content that people weren't really leveraging that much to begin with, they didn't even know it existed. Yes. And as we did that, you, you know, our provost at the time said, you know, this is going beyond just filling in the gap this could be something that would be a general wellness resource for all the university population, student, faculty, staff as well. Um, mm. And that's so where Ascari evolved. So you, you expanded the service, uh, the uh, interaction of Ascari to include psychoeducation for everyone at USC? Yep, in terms of uh, mental health particularly, but general health care, and it's updated pretty regularly. We've got some COVID content up there so that people could ask questions that they weren't already aware from uh, the media deluge of what's uh, going on right now. But it, it's, a, um, it's a system that unifies a lot of disparate information, integrates it, and has a central source where you can ask questions about it. You can ask questions about loneliness, you can get credible answers, you can get exercises, you can be sent, uh, given a link where you can listen to patient testimonials talking about what they went through and, and their experience and how, uh, what their experience of therapy might have been. Um, so it is a, a, a set of resources that uh, I think ha would have general value and uh, the idea of engaging with a friendly character that you can talk to uh, mm -hmm. may be an involved, it, it may activate the areas that we actually activate in our brains when we get advice from a friend or a colleague mm -hmm. or a clinician in some ways or an expert. Could you see this kind of technology be expanded to help, um, say for example, uh, the, the massive PTSD uh, population that will be uh, will be around after the COVID uh, pandemic? 
Well, we'll 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 see what uh, how big that population is, but certainly the general mental health and well-being uh, of everyone that's gone through this uh, once in a century or once in a generation experience, uh, I think this is helpful. You know, with PTSD, one of the things that is really important is the idea that we keep people connected with a healthcare system. When people start to feel isolated and they don't know where to turn, that's where the trouble begins. And this, of course, you know, we see with the, the increasing suicide rate in the general population, certainly in the military and veteran populations. Um, so if we can keep people connected um, and provide them with some kind of an outlet that might be useful in and of itself or might be useful for connecting them to other people, then we may be able to chip away at this problem. We're not under any delusion that we're just going to AI-ify all treatment and all care and all help to everybody. Uh, But I think it's a powerful tool that we can bring to bear on this problem, and it deserves a significant amount of study. Uh, So, uh, you know, I think that we will be pursuing this, and we're certainly, we're working on, as well as some of the major tech companies, um, a mobile phone-enabled uh, character that can check in with you on a daily basis and uh, not be a nag, you know, spend two, three minutes with you each day um, and engage you in positive dialogue and so on. And if you want to spend more time with the agent, you can choose that and, and go off on a, a dialogue uh, about what you're going through. But um, we're trying to make this, we look at it as a cross-platform approach where we bring to bear mobile technology, but make it more engaging. Um, mm. web-based technology, cloud-based technology, sitting in front of a computer, and, yes. of course, VR headset applications where, uh, in certain situations, being immersed in an environment and interacting in a social context within a VR environment uh, may also add value. So, And, of course, AR. I, you know, I could talk for a whole podcast just <laughs> on, on augmented reality and, of course, the AI component. But the point being that, uh, it's not a, it's not, you, you're only, it's like, you, you don't just use a hammer all your life. You have yes. a toolbox. Yes, yes. <laughs> <laughs> you know, a lot of times people ask me, what's a, what's a better technology, augmented or virtual reality? And I, I say, well, you, let me ask you a question. What's a better What's a better tool, a screwdriver or a hammer? <laughs> well, you know, depending on the on the problem, one may be better than the other, but you know, they're both good tools. And to that, uh, you know, I I'd like to conclude this podcast and say thank you very much, because the, these are the kinds of tools, the, the tools that you're developing, that is so vital, uh, that can reach so many people. Uh, and and assist uh, so many people while clinicians are not available for for every single one of us. Well, thank you. I, I appreciate that. I appreciate the time that you've offered me here. Yeah, thank you very much for work and... for taking the time uh, <laughs> from from working yeah. from home during this uh, really uh, well, <laughs> stressful time for everyone. Yeah, tough times. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. To to yeah. Uh, to talk about uh, this kind of work, and I I believe that in the future. Uh, your work will be co- very vital uh, to the assistance of uh, bigger change that is going to happen. Well, after- thank you. And I hope we can make a difference in this area. Thank you very much, uh, Skip.
with that, you, we've reached the end of this episode with the Trauma and Mental Health Report podcast. Thank you for joining us. Connect with us at traumablog.uyorku.ca. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast and newsletter to see our latest content. See you at the next episode.